Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think that Kerouac yet a brother who whom he idolized, Gerard, who died when he was nine and Kerouac was three. And then a number of Kerouac's friends died in World War II, a great number of them. And I think that there's much that could be gained from those biographical details, because that seems to affix Kerouac with a sort of lifelong fascination or even obsession with mortality and how how literature or art might be some kind of bulwark against impermanence. And so part of the memory project becomes about, well, about, about that, right? About the, it's a, it becomes a way of dealing with impermanence, and Buddhism gave him a way to, one way to think about impermanence. The other thing that I would say is that those deaths and their impressions upon him also explain another characteristic of Kerouac's literature, and that it tends not only to be autobiographical, but often about male loneliness and vulnerability and male, and male relationships. There are a lot of buddy books, right? And so in Dharma Bums, he's buddies with Gary Snyder. And on the road, he's buddies with, with Neil Cassidy. And it's all, you know, so much of the literature becomes about these insecurities surrounding male relationships which I think have something at least to do with the trauma of loss of friends and male family members early in his life. Walking is the exact balance between spirit and humility. The words of American beat poet, essayist and environmental activist Gary Snyder. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What does it mean to be a radical thinker? And was Jack Kerouac the unwilling father of the Beast generation? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with two fresh and vibrant thinkers. One an American, the other a Dutchman. Writers of tremendous insight, hope and opinion. Todd Titchen unpacks the roots and roots of Beat icon Jack Kerouac. And Rukar Bremen defends his radical manifesto, Utopia for Realists, published by Bloomsbury. But first... Is there a better way to live? And can the problem of homelessness be solved in our lifetime? Well, my name is Rutger Breckman, and I recently read the book Utopia for Realists, published by Bloomsbury. And it's a book with a very simple question, actually. It's about how can we make utopia real? I think that the big problem of today is not so much that we don't have it good, but that we have no new radical vision of where we want to go next. So in my book, I propose three ideas, a universal basic income for everyone to completely eradicate poverty, a radically shorter working week of about 15 hours a week, and open borders around the globe. Now, all these ideas may seem pretty crazy. Um, I always like to remind people that every milestone of civilization, the end of slavery, democracy, equal rights for men and women, you know, these were all utopian fantasies once. Uh, So progress, as Oscar Wilde once wrote, is the realization of utopias. And that's why we need to relearn how to think in utopian. 
Really well done on the book, Rutger. It is such an expansive read. It's so ambitious, hopeful, brilliantly argued, I have to say. But in ter- in terms of taking a kind of a deeper perspective on where humanity is going, I really think it's quite something. On that point, I might throw you a, a big wide open question. Do you think ideas can change the world? Do you think we can hope at least that ideas can change the world? Definitely. I mean, we can think so and we can hope so because ideas have changed the world in the past. I mean, there are so many examples. If you just think about, for example, the women who were arguing in favor of the women's right to vote at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. You know, these women were not the, the people with most power in society or with the most money, but they did have an incredibly powerful idea and they won. So I think time and time again, there are examples in history where ideas really can and do change the world. And actually, it works both ways. So you could also see, uh, I mean, Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump. These are also examples of the power of utopian thinking. You know, this would have seemed unimaginable just 10, 20 years ago. And here we are. So, uh, yeah, I think that really proves that if you want to change the world, you need to have faith in the power of ideas. Utopia for realists, who are you aiming the book at? I know it's been pitched as neo-utopian literature, whether you'd agree with that mm-hmm. or not. But I'm just wondering, where, where, where do you think the market is for a book like this? Well, it's basically a book for everyone who has questions about the future and who feels that traditional left or right political parties don't have the answers anymore. People want to move beyond the old and boring political distinction between the left and the right, who are interested in new ideas. And, you know, sometimes these people are young, sometimes they're not. Often they are outside of mainstream political and journalistic circles. They're outside of the mainstream, often. But I don't know, it's, it's not specifically marketed to a specific group or anything. You quote the great French mathematician Pascal, who wrote that humanity is great because it knows itself to be wretched. That made me laugh so hard. But he's got a point, hasn't he? Well, actually, he had a point when he lived, you know, that was this was centuries ago. It was also the, you know, the British philosopher who at the same time wrote that life is basically nasty, brutish and short. And for thousands of years, this was true, you know, about 99 percent of human history, about 99% of humanity was sick, poor, hungry, stupid, dirty, afraid, and ugly. You know, that is the natural state of humanity. And it only started to change a very short while ago. Actually, we've seen tremendous progress in the past 200 years after the Industrial Revolution, but especially after the Second World War. You know, nowadays, we are richer, wealthier, and healthier than ever. So again, I think the big problem is not that we don't have it good. We have achieved a lot of things in the past, but the thing is, we don't know where to go next. So you think we lack the imagination, whether it's politicians, community activists, all sorts of different types of thinkers, that they lack the imagination to think differently, to take us to the next phase? Let me give you an example. I mean, the left or progressives used to know very well what they were for. But nowadays, they only seem to know what they're against. And they're basically against a lot of things, you know, against austerity, against the establishment, against homophobia, against racism, against growth. Now, I'm not saying I'm not against all those things, but you also need to be for something. You know, Martin Luther King, he did not say, I have a nightmare. He had a dream. So that's why I think we need to formulate new dreams. Well, what does a civilised society look like to you? Or how do you understand Mm -hmm. human progress in your own lived experience of the world? Well, in the book, I argue in favour of what you could call real freedom. I think that everyone should have the means and the freedom to decide 
for himself what to do with his or her life. So we've got two big problems at the moment. The first is that millions of people around the developed world in very rich countries are still stuck in poverty. It's an incredible waste of human potential. Actually, I try to show in my book that it's cheaper just to completely eradicate poverty than to combat the symptoms of it. And so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that millions and millions of people with excellent resumes and great salaries feel that their jobs have little meaning or significance. You know, a recent poll in the UK actually found that as much as 37% of British workers have a job that they think to be completely useless, you know, meaningless. So uh, I think we completely need to rethink what work is. And a basic income would give everyone the means and the opportunity to decide for his or himself what to do with his or life and how to contribute to the common good. So that's very basically the, the kind of society that I envision. It's all about freedom. You bring up the work of the British economist from the University of Manchester, I think, Joseph Hanlon, who argues poverty is fundamentally about lack of cash. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you have no boots. And you bring up a, a very visionary um, um, project in um, in Britain, which is supporting the homeless through giving homeless people a certain stipend to empower mm-hmm. their lives. Can you talk to me about, I think it's the, is it the Broadway project in London? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me first say, some people might remember the, the quote of Margaret Thatcher, who said years ago uh, that poverty is a personality defect, a lack of character, basically. Uh, now, not many people nowadays would be so blunt, uh, but the underlying idea is actually pretty common, that there's something wrong with the poor themselves, and that we, I don't know, maybe we should teach them how to live their lives, or we should hold them responsible for their own mistakes. But, you know, the idea that there's something wrong with the poor is pretty common, actually. But if you look at the scientific evidence and some fascinating new scientific evidence, it also shows that poverty is not a lack of character. It's just a lack of cash. And it's pretty easy to cure a lack of cash. You know, you just need to give cash. You just need to give money, get people out of poverty. And then what we find in all these experiments is that people get up, do something with their lives, healthcare costs go down, crime goes down mental health complaints came down, and a lot of other uh, very positive developments. And one of the many stories that I tell in the book that show this is indeed the experiment uh, that happened in London in 2009. So what happened here is this was an experiment with homeless people who had been living on the street for years and years, so some of them for more than 40 years. And at some point, Broadway and a charity organization decided, you know what, we're going to try something new they'll all receive £3,000, and they're completely free to decide for themselves what they want to spend it on. And you know, even at that organization, quite some of the social workers were skeptical, you know, aren't these men going to waste it on drugs or alcohol? But actually, they used the money really well. You know, they, they spend it on a, on a dictionary or hearing aid or one of the mental gardening classes. And most importantly, a year after the experiment, seven out of 13 of the men had a roof above their head two more had applied for housing. Now, what you should know is that this this doesn't only make moral sense, uh, it also makes financial sense. So the project costs about £50,000, but it costs about £400,000 to let these people live on the street uh, in terms of healthcare costs, police expenses, etc. So they had saved a lot of money, even the economists. You know, not exactly a left-wing paper. Even the Economist wrote that the best way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them.
Why do you think it is, though, that a lot of, whether it's different types of charities or through government schemes, that they haven't maybe put choice in the hands of those mm-hmm. who are homeless, that they haven't used that as an empowerment tool and that they're very unwilling to give cash as maybe a handout because they would see, they'd look at things that maybe that, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that it will be disincentive maybe in some way. Well, the problem is that the left thinks that people will be lazy and will quit their jobs or something. And it also doesn't trust people to make its own choices. I mean, that's, that's basically what the left and the right agree on nowadays. There's so much paternalism. There's so much bureaucracy. What do you say to the argument that society can function without some degree of inequality? I know it's not very palatable, but what do you say to that charge? That, you know, in, inequality does benefit mm-hmm. some. I'm not arguing in favour of communism or anything. I'm not saying that everyone should receive the same amount of money. A basic income is just a platform, you know, it's just a floor, it's a, it's a base where you could also see it as venture capital for the people. It will give everyone the opportunity to try something new. And I think that's what capitalism is all about, right? Having the ability to take risks, to start a new company, to move somewhere else. And the problem is, is that many, many people, especially the poor, don't have the ability to take, to take risks. And then we shouldn't be surprised that there's not a lot of innovation going on. Because, I mean, in the end, humans and human talent is the real capital we've got. So we need to unleash that. And people are allowed to earn as much as they want on top of that basic income. Rutger, you write, it's no longer possible to express our prosperity in simple dollars, pounds or euros. From healthcare mm-hmm. to education, from journalism to finance, we're all still fixated on efficiency and gains, as though society were not one big production line. But it's precisely mm-hmm. in a service-based economy that simple quantitative targets fail. So within that, do you think everything in life is measurable? Can we come at life like that? Do you think that's a positive thing? Well, let me say I'm not against measuring things. But you need to think really hard about what numbers you're using and what the values and assumptions are behind the numbers. So let me give you an example. Uh, If you'd ask an economist, what is productivity? He or she would say, well, productivity, that's very easy. That's just the amount of money you contribute towards GDP, basically the amount of money you earn. But if you don't think about that definition of productivity, that's a pretty weird definition. I mean, that would mean that a flesh trader on Wall Street who doesn't contribute anything of social value actually probably destroys social value. That means that he or she would be very productive, while a garbage collector would be pretty unproductive because, I mean, these people don't earn that much money. Well, actually, if you think about the question, what would happen if a garbage collector would go on strike? Well, that's pretty terrible, right? I mean, I've got one story in the book of a strike uh, that happened in New York 1968, of strike of garbage collectors, and that lasted for six days, and then the emergency state had to be declared. It was a complete disaster. You know, an average city can't survive without garbage collectors. And then I wondered, has it ever happened that the bankers went on strike? And actually, this is pretty funny. I found only one example in all world history, and this was Ireland 1970, where, where the bankers decided, you know what? We think our wages aren't aren't high enough. We're going to stop working. Now, that strike lasted for six months. So not six days, but six months. And nothing much happened. You know, the economy just kept growing. And after six months, the bankers came back and said, all right, all right, all right. We'll start working again. So I think these kind of stories show you that the the question, what is productivity, is, is not something that we should hide behind numbers or something. We need to have a real 
democratic debate about what we really value as a society. Well, I think that garbage collectors are a lot more important than bankers, to be honest. But you could get five people in a room, Rutger, and they would all have a different opinion on how you build a productive economy. Because mm-hmm. it's it, we all have different demands within that, and we're all looking at it from very different ways and very different approaches. Sure, sure. and that's why, why we've in, invented democracy, right? To have a proper conversation about that and make compromises and et cetera, et cetera. But what we've now done is hide those assumptions behind numbers, and we have more and more people working in jobs that they say, I mean, it's not just me saying it, they say it, that they don't contribute anything of value. I mean, it's sometimes it seems as if our economy is completely upside down. The more money you earn, the less you contribute. There's this great quote from a former math whiz who worked at Facebook who said that the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. And indeed, it is what we see in the data is that since the 1980s, more and more you know, smart young people who used to go and work for government or for university or research organizations, they now all, all work in the financial sector or they work for big companies like Google and Facebook trying to think uh, about how we can click on ads more. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty sad, isn't it? I mean, the, some people wonder why the rate of innovation is, is not as fast as it used to be. Well, I think it is a pretty easy answer because so many smart people are wasting their time right now in a useless job. We should have a real conversation about that. You pitch up a very interesting question, Rukar. You ask, is there anything that working less does not solve? Well, you tell me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, it's quite interesting is that so many of the challenges we face right now from, you know, the epidemic of stress, but also climate change. Time and time again, the answer is just working less. And I don't say working less so that we can sit more on the couch, but working less so that we can do more. So nowadays, we keep on working in jobs we don't like to spend money on things we don't care about to impress people we don't like either. So that's, that's pretty sad. What I think we should do is work less so that we have more time to spend on our kids, on our family, caring for our elderly, volunteers work, build social capital. And then, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to look at the research and see that a, a healthy society, a much more sustainable economy, definitely depends on, on having a, a lot shorter work week. What do you think the London School of Economics anthropologist David Graeber offered the debate? I know you mention his uh, very influential article or essay on the mm-hmm. phenomenon of bullshit jobs. But how do you think he mm-hmm. stretched how we view our working week? Well, I think he is one of the most interesting thinkers of our time, especially that I say I'd recommend it to anyone, uh, because he has a very smart definition of what a bullshit job is. You know, he's an anthropologist. I'm a historian. Some people might say, well, (laughs) you've got the real bullshit job. But the thing is, people can define it for themselves. So it's pretty interesting. You know, when I started writing about this, at first I thought, how big can this be? Then I wrote my first piece about it, and the confessions just kept pouring in. You know, <laughs> people were, were telling me all the time, like, yes, 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 I've got one of those jobs as well. And what's even more interesting is the phenomenon that I discovered of the, of the part-time bullshit job. So this happens a lot in journalism. Let me give you an example. Uh, you're a young journalist, and you really want to do investigative journalism into companies that you don't like. Uh, but you don't have the money to do so. It's pretty expensive. So what you do is you make ads and branded content for companies that you hate. 
So then you use that money to do investigative journalism into exactly those kind of companies. So in modern capitalism, time and time again, we finance the stuff that we really care about with bullshit. You know, it's completely upside down. And what I, what I try to propose in the book is to turn it around and to start with doing the things we really care about. You argue in the end it's not the market or technology that decides what is real value but society. If we want this century to be one in which all of us get richer then we'll need to free ourselves of the dogma that all work is meaningful. Can mm-hmm. you talk me through that? I, I'd like to move towards a different definition of work. So the definition of work we now have is that work is the thing you do in a hierarchical relationship with an employer and you get paid for it and you pay taxes over it and that's work. And everything else, all the volunteers' work, everything that doesn't contribute to GDP, we don't consider that work. And I think that's a ludicrous definition. And I'd like to propose a different definition of work, which is work is adding something of value, doing something that makes the world a little bit more interesting, a little bit more beautiful, a little bit more happier or whatever. That's what we should consider work, whether it's unpaid or paid. And, you know, it's a very easy way to find out whether your work is valuable or not. Just stop doing it and see what happens. You know, if all the writers in the world would go on strike, you know, that's probably a problem. I, I think I like books, so that, that's, that's probably going to make the world a little bit less interesting. If all the garbage collectors are going on strike, if all the doctors go on strike, that's a disaster. You know, these, these people are doing incredibly valuable work. But then imagine what would happen if all the bankers go on strike? What would happen if all the telemarketeers go on strike? If all everyone in marketing would go on strike? Well, maybe that's not going to be a very big problem. Maybe, so maybe this is a very easy way to think about what is work and what is not work. You quote an Oxford